Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Doherty. Doherty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty. He is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we focus on the topic of leadership in an open and raw kind of way. We discuss failures and how to rebound from them. I became passionate about leadership after being forced to resign from my coaching job at the University of North Carolina in 2003. I went on a leadership journey and realized that it may be the most undertaught topic in formal schooling, yet be the most important. With me today is David Chadwick. He graduated from UNC and played basketball like I did under the legendary coach Dean Smith and was part of the 1969 Final Four team. David has been a pastor in the Charlotte community for over 40 years, and he presently leads Moments of Hope Church in Charlotte. Along with doing a radio ministry on WBT, he has written eight books. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's great being with you. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And, and I look forward to unpacking um, a lot of this stuff that I think our audience can really benefit from. David, I touched on the good, sh- good stuff. Um, on this show, I want to do a deep dive into your experience as a leader of a mega church, Forest Hill Church, and your sudden split from the church. Uh, it had become one of the largest churches in the Southeast under your guidance. You were there for 39 years. Then you, like me, were forced to resign, depart in a very public manner. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, first of all, Matt, let me say there was nothing sexual and nothing monetary in any of the charges against me. My life is pure in those ways. I've been married to a wonderful woman for 42 years and have three kids, eight grandkids. So that area of life was untouchable. My financial integrity is beyond a reproach. I have nothing there that needed to be questioned. It just came out of the blue. You know, when I came to Forest Hill in 1980, uh, it was a church with a $93,000 budget, about 100 people in worship. And Marilyn and I, my wife, just devoted ourselves to caring and loving for those people. We never experienced the exponential growth that some mega churches have, but we just added three to 400 people almost every year in the 40 years we were there. Um, so the church was, you know, six to 10,000 people in worship on a Sunday morning, uh, a $27 million budget. And I had a real commitment to being debt free. We had $70 million worth of property with all of the campuses that we'd built debt free. So I thought things were going really well. The year before, we had uh, increased the budget by $5 million. Everybody seemed really excited. And out of the blue, at 1030 at night, almost two years ago, I got a letter from the head of our 
council board, which is our elder board, that uh, accusations had been brought against me by the staff and uh, that they were taking uh, those accusations very seriously. Uh, I came back and got interviewed by the elders, uh, never was able to meet with the staff. I asked to. They said, no, they're afraid of you. Mm. Uh, They all came in before the elder board as whistleblowers, uh, trying to do this anonymously and secretively, which, by the way, as a minister, there's nothing in the Bible that allows that to happen. You're to face your accuser and be able to deal with stuff, but they never would allow me to do that. And bottom line, Matt, within about a week or so, they told me that I was this awful person and I had all these things brought against me, that my refutations of them when I met with them weren't adequate enough, and that basically I was being asked to leave and that I had to do so immediately. So within one week, I lost 39 years of ministry. I couldn't face my accusers. I couldn't um, defend myself before the congregation. And then they offered me a lot of money to take a severance package and then agree never to plant a church within 30 miles of one particular largest campus. And I just couldn't do that. My call to ministry was still very valid. Marilyn and I prayed about it a lot. And we felt like we just needed to say thank you very much and we're going to go start another church. And that's what we did. And for the last two years, we've done Moments of Hope Church, which interestingly has become eminently successful and wonderful. But you still deal with the wounds and the hurts of a sudden rejection, a sudden resignation and dismissal. And you wonder all the time, is that really who I am? And you could never get closure because you can never face your accuser. Mm-hmm. accuser. So best I've been able to, I've tried to move on and to redevelop my life and use your word to rebound with what's happened to me. There's so much to unpack there. Um, As you talked, you know, when people think of a pastor, they don't think of the business of pastoring a church. Uh, It was a business. You know, you think of like you, you just explained something that could have happened at Bank of America, not at a church. What formal reviews did you have as the leader of a church answering to a board? Did you get re- yearly reviews, quarterly reviews? Yeah, I had an annual review uh, done by what was called then the Senior Pastor Development Committee. We had an HR department, you can imagine, with 150 staff people on all of the campus's staff. We had to oversee them. And my last review from the Senior Pastor Development Committee was in November before the January confrontation of the accusations, and it was all positive. It was all very positive. They said I was doing a great job. So there was no uh, hint that I was doing anything wrong until I got that letter saying that charges had been brought against me. And what was the date of that letter again? Uh, The letter came in January the 31st, 2019. So in the November beforehand, 2018, I'd had a very positive review. And every year before that, annually, a very positive review. And, and the church was considered, as you mentioned, one of the real successful churches, not only in the city, but throughout the Southeast. So to say I was shocked is an understatement. When you read that letter, when you opened that letter, and I was talking to Governor McCrory uh, on a previous podcast about this, what sensation went through your body? You know, I, I remember when I, you know, I had a call with Dick Bedore at North Carolina and things weren't going well. And I met him face to face and I was like, it was kind of an outer body experience for me. My body went numb. What, what were your sensations that you felt in your gut, in your head, throughout your, your limbs? 
Well, I opened up my computer to just check any kind of emails that had come in before I went to sleep, just to make sure I was on top of everything. And that one was there at 1030 at night. And my first response was a cry out to my wife, Marilyn. (laughs) I said, I've got to show you something. And she came in and read it with me. And I think the first experience, Matt, was total shock. I felt like somebody had electrocuted me. I couldn't hardly move. I didn't know what was going on. And then I think your body then responds with defense. It tries to anesthetize the pain. And so that night I couldn't sleep. I tossed and turned all night long. The next day was awful as well as Marilyn and I tried to talk through what it could be. I tried to call people, couldn't get anybody to respond to my calls. And then the next two days were when I finally was able to meet with the elder board. But my feelings were non-existent. I was numb. I just could hardly move, and I couldn't figure out what was going on because nobody would talk to me. So for some 72 hours, I literally experienced, and still do some today, um, what I think is called PTSD, Mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, you just live in a shocked state, and your body then again anesthetizes the pain to help you get through the next hour. Wow. Wow. What was your wife's first reaction to reading the letter you know uh my wife my wife's from concord and 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 you know she's got some some concord tough in her she wants to fight (laughs) you know uh what was your wife's first reaction well marilyn's a very bright person and she loves me dearly i don't know why to this day i'm not sure why she cares for me the way she does but she does and her response was very analytical because that's who she is. I mean, she was feeling the pain with me very empathetically, trying to understand what I was going through. But her first question was, what's going on? What do we need to do to address this? And she came up with a list of people that I needed to call to try to find out what's what. I couldn't think clearly. She was thinking clearly. Okay. Backtracking, looking back now, were there any hints from anybody that tried to warn you Hey, David, this is coming down the pike. Or, David, you need to adjust here. And, and, and maybe some blind spots that you may have had that looking back, you say, man, they were trying to tell me something that I should have changed a certain behavior or should have been, been I talk about landmines. Like, there's a landmine. You're getting ready to step on. Watch your step. Any of that as you look back on your last, you know, several months, year, Mm -hmm. Uh, at Forest Hill? Great question, Matt. Well, I think after 39 years having been there and with the success of the church, I thought I was bulletproof. I really did. I just didn't think anybody would ever come against me. I thought I would have the privilege, like, you know, Roy Williams now or Mike Krzyzewski now, Mm -hmm. to be able to choose when I would want to leave. But looking back, I had several times that staff would come to me and say, who's going to be your successor? And I would always respond, well, you know, I'm still relatively healthy. I enjoy what I do. Last year, we gained $5 million in our budget. It proves that I've still got something in the tank, and it's not fair to bring on a successor unless I'm willing to be succeeded. And I'm not ready yet, and so let's just keep moving forward. Looking back, I think some of those conversations were more intense and serious than I realized. I also had my senior staff, and and as I learned later, the eight whistleblowers were basically the eight senior staff, that they wanted to take the church in a different direction. And I can see now looking back several times when they would say, we want this, we want this, we want this. And I would say, no, 
I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's best for the church. So I would dismiss what they would say. And later I learned the charges against me were that I was defensive, Mm -hmm. dismissive, angry, didn't take them seriously, didn't care for them, all of those kind of things. I created a hostile work environment. And, you know, looking back, maybe I should have seen those things. Mm -hmm. But again, I thought everything was working so well that we didn't need to address those issues. And I thought at those at that time that those issues were not where the church should go. Yeah. Wow. Um, how, looking back, did, did those things come up in a staff meeting? Like, did you, like a, did you have a weekly meeting with your senior staff and maybe someone brought that up? And then how would you dismiss, how would you counter their, their ideas? Yeah, I, I had weekly staff meetings. Mm-hmm. I would have one-offs with individuals on staff. And when they would bring me these things, I would try, I thought, to be polite and say, mm-hmm. thank you for that idea. But, you know, I know this congregation better than anybody, having been here for 39 years, and I just don't think that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't transition this kind of church to this cool, hip church mm-hmm. that you want it to be without a lot of pain in between. Uh, in the early 90s, I had actually transitioned Forest Hill from a more traditional church to a more contemporary church, mm-hmm. and that was very painful. Mm-hmm. We had people leave and people not like it but as a leader i thought that was what was best and i knew the pain of transition you know interestingly um, when that baby's ready to be born uh, and the most painful time for the woman is a time called transition Mm. and interestingly i know the pain of transitions and i thought no we don't need to go through that now that's not what's best for this church but they thought it was and i just didn't pick up the clue matt yeah i i as i mentioned i'm coming out with a book called rebound from pain to passion and one of the things i i, I talk about stevitt the six no's k-n-o-w um of leadership and and stevitt is a name i made up just so i can remember it uh but s is know yourself and then the last t the second t is know your team know your environment know your vision know the industry like you got to be the industry expert and then know the truth and i think we as leaders, and I know my time at North Carolina, I probably didn't do a great job of mining for the truth and creating a safe environment where people can explore and and bring me their ideas, and I applauded them for it. And I'm not saying you didn't do this, but I think it's so important that we mine for the truth. And then I tell people now, if I was a head coach tomorrow, I would have one of my assistants on their business card it would have their name and their title be truth teller that I want them to feel it's an, not their right, but their obligation to come into my office at any time and say, Matt, you're screwing up. You got to listen better. You've got to, you got to take their input. You've got to do this. You got to do that because we all have blind spots and, 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 and then that helps close that blind spot. And then, then it's up to you as a leader to say, Yes or no. But um, I think a couple things, and, and, and I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. You're 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, I'm 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, I was listed at 6'8". I think I'm 6'6 six, six now. After. We shrink a little <laughs> bit through the years, Matt, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> but, but, like, you don't know. I didn't know how, how impactful my size was until a player said, Coach Darty's intimidating. He's tall. 
And you and I were all, we don't see the comparison because we're looking out from our eyes. So we don't see how tall, much bigger we are than somebody else. And we've else. always been tall. We we've don't know any difference. And we've always been around tall people. You're right. And, and I know on my team, and this is back in the late 60s and early 70s, we had two seven-footers, a 6'11 guy, a 6'10 guy, and another 6'9 guy. And then here I am at 6'7, and I thought, I'm normal. They're really tall. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so two things. Did you have a truth teller on your staff that someone could come to you? Who was the truth teller in your life? Maybe it was Marilyn, but um, did you have one? Well, Marilyn gave me some warnings uh, the last couple of years that I did not heed. I, I just didn't think they were right. Looking back, she was spot on. I had a second in command that I thought would tell me the truth. He would probably, if he was on this podcast, say, well, I brought these things to you. You know, Matt, I don't remember them. And if I was in that much trouble that I could lose 39 years of my life's work in one week, I've got a feeling I would go home and say to Marilyn, I'm in trouble. There's some things I need to address. I just don't remember those times. One mistake I know that I made was with six campuses, 150 staff, a $27 million budget, $70 million worth of property, debt-free, all of those kind of things. I didn't want to manage those things. I'm a gifted communicator. I can speak. I can cast vision. I can teach the Word of God really well. Those are my gifts. So when I had my second-in-command say, you just go high, you concentrate on those things that you do well, I'm going, whoo, good. And he said, I'll take care of everything else. I just let him do it, and I failed to stay in touch intimately in friendships with my senior leadership, and I probably did fail in that way and should have been more involved with their lives relationally, which probably would have allowed them to maybe speak more openly to me uh, in this time of my life. But I didn't have that because I went high with so many responsibilities that I had. You know, I was preaching, teaching, writing books, radio, podcasts, all the things that you're doing as well. Mm-hmm. And that was a 50 to 60 hour a week job alone. So it was a relief to me to have somebody do all the other stuff. In the end, I think what happened is I lost touch relationally with people. There's a, a great book that I'm reading now called Shackleton's Way, uh, Ernel Shackleton, who led endurance to the South Pole. And the biggest thing that he probably did, besides optimism, was communicate with everyone on his ship. Now, he was on a ship with men. <laughs> his family wasn't there. It was 24 hours a day. You know, uh, they were together all, all, all the waking hours. But he spent time with the different people and even the difficult ones and and, uh, um, got to know them. And and that is so critical. But yet, yeah, I could see how you delegate and a person that gladly accepts it. But now he's empowered. And, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if he doesn't like something you do, he can quickly turn on you as well and not tell you. A hundred percent. Uh-huh. We know, Matt, another thing that I think happened for me, and, and I think our listeners would enjoy this as well, is we've, over the last four years especially, have gone through a cultural vortex change. It's been huge. And, you know, from the Republican Trump presidency to where we are now, there's a division. And with the whole Black Lives Matter and the racial tensions that exist today, all the intersectionality and doxing and cancel culture, et cetera, 
cetera. I mean, the divisions have never been so great. So probably some of my more conservative biblical views were not tolerated by members of staff who had probably a mission, vision change themselves, and I just didn't know it. And I wasn't involved with them enough to know their, not only mindset, but their anti-David mindset, which probably exacerbated what happened to me. Well, it's, I appreciate your candidness. This, this is where people can learn. I, my, my, I have a coaching practice, the Doherty coaching practice, and work with executives. And my motto is learn and grow. So thank you for uh, being so open and, and allowing the audience to learn and grow. You did it in a, in a huge church, and it was very public, the divorce. I did it at the University of North Carolina, very public divorce. Yours uh, was worse than mine, Matt. No, no, I mean, no. When you, I w- I you're a rabid 30. Carolina I, person. You know, you have those feelings, and they go off the wall. <laughs> I, 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 you know, <laughs> but you know, answering real quickly, Coach Smith was the one who said to me, "You know, the toughest job in this state might be you, David, more than me." He said because the only person who might be more rabid than a Carolina fan is somebody who's rabid about their religious yes, convictions. Yes, hundred percent. And I was going to ask you. You know, we both played for Coach Smith, maybe one of the best leaders this country has ever had. You have no argument for right. me. And I know you wrote a book about it. Uh, and and what is the title of that book? It's, it's How You Play the Game, The 12 Leadership Principles of Dean Smith. I, I just, at the end of his um, coaching career, I just sat down with him and said, Coach, I'd love to explore in my own mind what made you successful. And I concluded it was because he was a man of deep, abiding principles. And he made decisions based on principles, not profit, not on caring for uh, people, like thinking him uh, as a great person. He just made his decisions based on principles. And I think that's what made him successful. He just did so over 36 years, and that's what allowed him to win all those games. And where can people buy that book? Yeah, they can go to Amazon.com, and it's there online. And uh, if people would enjoy reading my perspective on what made Coach Smith successful, I'd love that to happen. Now, okay, you wrote the book on the 12 principles. What lessons did you apply what lessons maybe you over overlooked at the at the end of your um tenure at forest hill and then now at your new church and the new church name is uh moments of hope church moment moments of hope church Mm -hmm. in charlotte what kind of like i think sometimes we need to I hate to use the word reset because it's a very political term now, but to reset and, and, and say, okay, I need to go back at, you know, after 40 years of, of running a church, what things, what fundamentals do I need to focus on? Because Coach was such a fun, all about fundamentals. So what did you learn from Coach Smith and what kind of are you pulling off, what fundamentals are you kind of dusting off the, 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 the bookshelf? Wow, you got five hours, Matt. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> we might have to do a five five yeah. spot series on this. How much he impacted my life. I know he did yours as well. Uh, what a great man, a genuinely good man. Well, people have asked me to digest the twelve principles down into maybe a few that are easily taught, and I've done so. If I had to take the three prince, uh, the twelve principles, and digest them to three, I would say first of all, Coach Smith lived and taught people first. Secondly, team first. Thirdly, character first. And I tried to live by those three principles in my life. And I think I maybe at the end of the day uh, got too busy doing stuff that I forgot those things. And I'm trying to reclaim them now in this new church that I've started. The first one, people are first. You know, 
beyond anything else. You've got to love people. You've got to care for people. You know, Matt, one of my favorite stories came from Richard Venrude, uh, the former mayor yes, of the city of Charlotte. Carolina yeah, too. Played at Carolina. Yes. He told me this story personally. He, you know, Carolina was playing Maryland in one of those games of the year in the Dean Dome. They'd moved from Carmichael, where you and I both played. And uh, King Rice had gotten into a campus altercation yes. the week before, yes. and there was a lot of conversation whether he would be able to start that game against Maryland or not. But, you know, Coach Smith, he said, you're guilty, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. So he started King Rice and played him the whole game. Well, Caroline didn't play that well. And in those last four minutes when the games usually decided King Rice was not playing well, and the normally greatly magnanimous North Carolina crowd was cascading booze down no upon way. Coach Smith. And you know, take bullied. him out, take him out, you know, because oh. King Rice yeah, was in the yeah. game. You know, yes. and, and it was making all these mistakes. And so Carolina lost the game. And and Richard told me he was in the locker room after the game. And Coach Smith came up to him. They shook hands. And, and Richard's normally very gracious himself. But yes, just said, is. you know, Coach, this was the game. You know, this would have given us the number one seed in the Eastern Regional and all of that business. You know, how could you have kept him in the game during those times when he was playing so poorly? You know, you, you always taught the, a, a substitute who's playing hard is better than a starter who's not playing well. And um, he said, you should have taken him out of the game. Really eviscerated wow. Coach Smith. And they had a very, very close yes, relationship. Yes, so they did. Yes, and, yes. <laughs> and Richard said that Coach Smith looked at him. And, you know, Coach Smith's about, you know, 5'10", 5'11". Yeah, and Richard 6'7", or so. <laughs> and stuck his finger up near his nose and said, I'll tell you something, Richard Venroot. He said, King Rice's sense of self-worth for the rest of his life is far more important to me than winning a stupid Atlantic Coast Conference basketball game. I'm getting goosebumps wow. on my arms right now. Can you hear him saying it? A hundred percent. And and so he cared for people more than he did profit. He cared for people more than the result. And that's what made guys like you and me run through brick walls for him. We wow. knew that. And the other one was team first, you know, people first, team first. And I mean, you know all the things he did, Matt. Uh, dive on the floor for the loose ball. The closest guy's got to go help that guy up or the whole team runs the next day or got to point to the person who gives you the pass. That was his idea. Mm-hmm. That was what was brought to college basketball through Dean Smith. And if you fail to point to that person who gave you the pass the next day, the whole team had to run. You know, if you're on the bench, um, you know, my sophomore year, I didn't get to play a whole lot. And people didn't recognize me walking around campus because I was standing up. Anyway, bad joke. Okay. But, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're on the bench and the guy comes out of the game, whether it's Jordan or whomever, you've got to stand on the bench and applaud. And if he catches you not doing that the next day, the whole team's got to run. So he drilled in all of us, team first, team first, team first. And we play that way. And then the third one was character first. You know, he would always be a man of great character. He was the same publicly and privately. His words matched his deeds. Whatever he told you would happen. In fact, Jimmy Delaney, you know, who's the former commissioner of the Big Ten, played with me then my years there and Jim said to me you know Coach Smith's got a, a, what I call a, his doctrine of predestination he knows how many minutes you're going to play from the first second you step on that campus as a freshman until you're a senior and you know there's probably some truth to that but but he was always honest with you he would tell you exactly what you needed to do in order to pray I, I play I remember I went into him after my sophomore year I wanted to play and I said Coach Smith I you know I want to play and I thought ah here's how you do it I want to help the team you know, how can I help the team? And he looked at me and said, David, you want to help this team and play more? I said, yeah. He said, become a better player. 
about that? And then he gave me particularly what I needed to work on during the summer. Get stronger, faster, quicker, work on my shooting, everything. And I did that. Came back my junior year, I got to start five games. Got to play some. And then my senior year, got to start 11 games and got to play a lot. I was the sixth man. So, you know, he was always honest. He was a man of integrity. So, you know, what I've tried to reclaim at Moments of Hope Church, Matt, are those three principles. You know what? People are first. My staff and the people I try to serve. Secondly, we're going to be a team. We'll make decisions based on what's best for the team, not the individual. And thirdly, I will be a man of character. My words will match my deeds. I'm going to be the same inside and outside, publicly and privately. And you can never question any decision that I make that isn't rooted in my sense of call to be a man of great character. That's what Coach Smith taught me. That's what I'm trying to reclaim. Maybe lost some of that, or particularly in those last years as I went too high, and, and trying to reclaim them now. I remember a story that's similar to the King Rice story, where Bruce Buckley was on the court, national championship game, 1977, against Marquette. I think it was a 17-point lead. They go to four corners. An assistant coach leans in to Coach Smith and says, let's call timeout and put Michael Corrin, who was starter, a starter and a freshman, back in, the final, back in the game for Bruce. And Coach Smith's response was, uh, I don't want to do that to Bruce. I don't want to embarrass him like that. Um, same kind of story. Now, I'll ask you, Bruce went in and had a shot blocked and changed the momentum of the game, and Michael Corrin might have scored that layup, and Carolina would have won. And and now Bruce, you know, that that's a little bit part of maybe his legacy. King Rice, they lost the game. He didn't play well. That's a part of could, you know, what would your response be to that? To the Carolina fans who say, you should have left him in the game and we could have won that right. game. Well, again, Coach Smith's feeling was that caring for people was more important than winning games. And uh, interestingly – Coach Smith and Roy Williams uh, had an event where uh, all the lettermen who had played for Coach Smith came back to celebrate uh, his life. And he was still alive at this point. And we had a big gathering in the room there. Um, And I don't know if it was Coach Smith or Roy. They chose someone to speak from the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s, and from the 90s. You know, Coach Smith retired in 97. He began his career in 1962 as the head coach at Carolina. And the one they chose from the 1980s was King Rice. And Matt, when he got up and spoke, he was a blubbering idiot. I mean, he just kept crying and crying. But he kept referring to Coach Smith believing in him and continuing to invest in him, even at times when he didn't deserve it. And all of us out there knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, King Rice has gone on to be a really good college basketball coach. And so Coach Smith maybe have lost that game against Maryland that Carolina fans wanted him to win. But at the end of the day, he built his life into a young man named King Rice who's gone on to be a college basketball coach who's affecting hundreds of kids himself. I mean, really from eternity's perspective and from a practical standpoint, which is more important? Right. Winning a game or investing in people's lives so that they can become all that God wants them to be? I think the answer is obvious. Uh, so Christ-like, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I mean, he modeled the behavior. Uh, people, Coach Smith's faith was so important to him in doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. What did he say all the time? It's always the right time to do the right thing. Yeah. And you shouldn't be applauded for doing what's right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, powerful. We could go on and on. We, we we could have a segment just on Coach Smith. Go well, ahead. I'll give you one more. You asked me what I learned from him in my situation that really helped me. You know, we had the thought of the day just like you guys yes. did. You had to memorize the thought of the day, and as you're in the circle there before the practice begins, <laughs> ah, Matt, what's the thought of the day? Right. And if right. you can't quote it verbatim, no. the whole team runs because that was important for him. But he used practices not just to teach basketball. He tried to teach life. Matt, one of those that I'll never forget that we had to memorize was when you fail, admit it, quit it, and forget it. When you fail, admit it, quit it, and forget it. What he's saying there is when you fail, all of us fail. You've had your failures. I've had my failures. Everybody in life's going to fail. Well, what should you do? First of all, admit it. Own it. You know, I made some mistakes. I wish I could redo them. I know you feel the same way, but admit it. Secondly, quit it. That's the word repent in the Bible. Well, don't do it again. (laughs) You know, learn from the mistake and don't do it again. But actually, thirdly, is so important, forget it. Move on with your life. You know, you don't get a second chance to live this life. I've tried to move on. You're moving on. We learn from our lessons, uh, the mistakes we've made, and we try to then enjoy life to the full. I learned that in a practice sometime in the 1960s or 70s. I can't remember exactly which practice. I memorized that quote. It has served to guide my life even today. Coach Smith continues to speak to my soul. I'm taking notes. For the, for people can't see this, but I'm taking notes. Uh, the, the principles of Coach Smith, um, I wrote down uh, people first, team first, character first, and then uh, the words will match my deeds, and when you fail, admit it, quit it, and forget it. Okay, easier said than done, Mr. Chadwick. Easier said than done. That leads oh, me to Drat, my you're going to move along, aren't you, and <laughs> my, my, make me be accountable for what I've said. No, 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 no. I wrote in my book um, the, about the bridge over the bitter river. Okay, and it's a hefty toll. It's a swervy bridge with no guardrails, and it's windy. Um, and you pay the toll, and you've got to really focus on driving across this bitter river. But a trigger, an article in the paper, uh, 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 how many times... <laughs> This is a rhetorical question. How many times does somebody say, oh, David, you got screwed by Forest Hill? I get that all the time. And then they're, they're saying it in good faith, trying to be supportive. But all of a sudden, you're my, you, you drive off the bridge into the river. And, uh, or you run into somebody that was a part of the scheme to get rid of you. And you, you think, I've gotten beyond it. And all of a sudden, there's something within you that swells up again. You go, doggone, I thought I had dealt with that. Right. And so, I haven't. So forget it. The part there, when you when you fail, admit it, quit it, and forget it. When you fail in a public manner, it's hard to forget it. There's so many triggers. What are the triggers? You just touched on a couple. And then how do you manage that emotionally? Right. Well, the triggers might be somebody referring to Forest Hill and that they're doing well. And I'll go... Do I really want them to do well? And I've got to go back to, of course, I, I pray for my persecutors. I bless those who've cursed me. I want them to do well. And I have to go back to my mind and remind my mind that that's what I've chosen to do. 
Um, and then you have to try to forget it again and keep moving on. You know, Matt, one of the teachings of Jesus that I think sometimes gets overlooked is, uh, you know, Peter came to Jesus and said, you know, when somebody hurts us, uh, should we forgive them seven times? And in that day, seven times was the rabbinical law for the number of times you should forgive somebody. Jesus said to Peter, no, you should forgive 70 times seven. And then the implication is, well, then on the 491st time, can I sock him in the wazoo, you know? And of course, Jesus wasn't saying that. He was choosing two numbers of perfection, seven and 70, and saying, you've got to forgive over and over and over and over again. I think Jesus realized that forgetting is tough. It really is hard. And we have sights and smells and people and sounds or whatever that remind us of the pain we went through and it starts to surge up again. And at that point, we've got to choose to forgive. We've got to choose to go back and remember, God, you've forgiven me my huge debt. I can forgive these people their debt against me as well. And I think the more you do that, the easier forgetting becomes. You get some distance and time and people don't remember as much, but it also allows your soul to heal as well. You touched on earlier, um, you know, trying to get closure and, and talking to your staff. And uh, I remember um, I wanted to, there's so many times I picked up the phone and started to dial Coach Smith's number just to to talk to him about it. I wanted to know what happened, and, and I wanted to tell him how I was feeling because I was dealing with depression. I wasn't sleeping well. Um, my mind was continually racing. There were so many triggers. And then I'd hang up. And finally, I set up an appointment six years after I was forced to resign with Coach Williams, and I wanted to talk with Coach Smith. Well, by that time, his health was failing, and he couldn't. And I remember going in to meet with Coach Williams in the office that I had, you know, it was my office a few years prior, six years prior, and sitting with him. And I wanted to just talk about what happened and how I felt and some of the things that I felt were, um, you know, done wrongly. Um, and as I sat there, I just started to cry. Mm kind of like mm-hmm. King Rice for like, mm-hmm. it felt like 10 minutes. It was probably a minute, but I'm saying to myself, man, I wanted to be strong. I wanted to be tough. We're big guys. We're basketball players. We're supposed to be tough, but it just came pouring out. And I explained to coach Williams and I really wasn't, you know, I would have loved for some magical words from him, but I really just wanted him to listen and, and hear the pain that I went through and when I went, walked out of that office that day, I felt like 600 pounds had went off mm. my shoulders and I had the best night's sleep. You haven't had that opportunity. Mm-mm. Yeah, the reason that I haven't is because those who made accusations against me twofold is, first of all, they did a whistleblower policy, which means anonymity and secretiveness. And secondly, they never gave me the accusations. I don't even know to this day what they are. So to go and try to reconcile with these people who had these problems with me is impossible because by law, they're not supposed to be known. So I just have to live in the daily recognition that they have these feelings against me. They used it to 
overthrow 39 years of life and ministry in this community and I really don't know why to this day and I probably won't know why so getting the kind of closure you're talking about Matt seems to be impossible someone mentioned to me well maybe you should have a mediator who will go between you and them and I got some counsel from some friends of mine and all of them said you shouldn't do that because I'm still trying to heal. And if I got into a mediation situation, I would have these eight people, and who knows, maybe there are more who've kind of joined the chorus since then, who say to the mediator, this is who this guy is. He's angry, dismissive, um, selfish, prideful, whatever they would say. And again, I don't know what that would be. It's never been brought to me, but this is who he is. And then the mediator would come to me and say, well, what do you have to say to this? And I'd go, well, that, that's not who I am. I mean, my wife who's lived with me for 42 years, she doesn't think that. My kids don't think that. My friends don't think that. And the mediator is going to say, yeah, but all of them think so. Yeah. And they were the ones who worked with you. Who's going to win? Yeah, nobody wins. I, there's just no way. So I'm going to be left again with just the wound. Yeah. Of, and there's no healing that can take place. So I've just had to go to the Lord mm-hmm. and hear his voice. I love you. You know, continue to work on your whatever there may be in you that's not of me. And uh, just know I give you my grace, which is beyond explanation. And that's where I've had to live. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Um, and in, in, in my um in, in the book Rebound, From Pain to Passion, and it, my pain was losing my job like you did, and my passion became leadership as I studied leadership, and I realized it was so undertaught, and there were so many things I did wrong, and uh, leadership is, there's no end line, there's no finish line, you're, you're, you're probably still trying to learn today. I am indeed, yes. and there's so much I think I need to learn yet, and yes. I thought I did it pretty well. Uh, but you know, one good thing about what happened to you and what happened to me is, it made us go back to the baseline and say, okay, who do I really want to be as a leader, and reconstruct that person, and you know, that we're even stronger because of that. A broken bone that heals is stronger than ever, so I think I'm a better leader than I've ever been. I've learned a lot, and I'm... I think one of the things I've had to really struggle with is to give thanks to God for what happened to yes. me. Yes. Wow. Oh, man, I've had all my friends tell me, you've got to thank God for this. And I go, whoa, wait a minute. Well, if he's sovereign and in control, he allowed this to happen. There's some reason for it that, you know, one of my jokes, Matt, is the most often spoken word in heaven is going to be, oh, <laughs> as God reveals to us why he made us go through what we went through. And we go, Oh, oh, it was for my good and your glory that way. Oh, oh, well, you know, that's part of the faith experience now, and I'm learning this. And so now I can give thanks to God for it because it made me better, made me stronger, made me more tender, more sensitive. And, and that's a good thing because, you know, really what God's doing is preparing us for eternity, not necessarily trying to get us successful here on this side for a few years. I those that's so powerful what you just shared and I just experienced that recently um I I've tried to read uh, a little bit of the bible every day people ask about good books you've written books I'm writing a book and you know, in the new year, they're like, what What are good books for 2021? I said, huh, how about we try the Bible? Yeah, that's a good book. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> like Proverbs is yeah. blows my mind at how relevant it is today. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. About- read, read one chapter every day, 31 chapters, get you through a month. Just start there. It, yep. It's a wonderful way to start. Yeah. Take you 10 minutes and you'll find pithy little Proverbs that apply to your life like nothing else. The The thing that you just touched on. 
I was having this conversation. <laughs> I was having this conversation with my wife, <clears throat> and I think my daughter, and we we're talking about why. Like, so many people go, "Why me?" Now, you and I just lost jobs. People lost lives, loved ones, cancer, limbs. You know, we're we're okay, but it still hurts deeply. So we ask why, and you just answered, you know, the why, you know, for for my good and his glory. Right. And the specifics might not be revealed to us until eternity. Will it be revealed? I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. I really <laughs> think so, Matt. I think the Lord will one day sit down with you and me and say, this is why I permitted this to happen, because I had a bigger purpose for both of you. I wanted to build your eternal character more than your earthly comfort. I, I wanted to make you into a spiritual being more than a successful being, and that there was purpose in this for the job I have for you in heaven. And the only way you can do for what I want you to do here was to go through what you went through there. What kind of job... Th- what kind of jobs will we have in heaven? Well, that's a great question, but evidently we will work because... Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't sign up for that. I'm I, sorry, When Matt, I became a believer, bubble, I, but... <laughs> I thought it was going to be wide open fairways and golf carts tee to green. I have no doubt that you'll be able to enjoy your golf game in heaven. I think the Lord will do that. Um, but I do think there's work to be done because work's good. In the Bible, work was never bad. God created work from the very beginning and called it good. Mental labor by naming the animals, Adam did. And secondly, physical labor to dress, till, and keep the land. So both of them were described as good before the fall ever occurred. So in heaven, there are going to be cities to be built. There are going to be oversight of leadership still that exists there. What did Jesus mean when he said, as you've been faithful here, I'll make you faithful over much there? Wow. So I think there's some idea of work and responsibility that we learn life's lessons here to help us do better there. Wow. And, and I think that allows us to say, okay, that makes sense that even in my grief and my loss, I lose a child, I lose whatever. I don't want to say something casually here, but right. even if you lose that, that God's, first of all, got your child in heaven with him so you can rest in that security. But secondly, in that grief, he's teaching you dependence, growth, trust, all of those things, which in the eternal scheme of things is very important. And that is faith. That's why we call it faith. Right? Exactly. And in, in Luke eighteen eight, Jesus said, when I come back, am I going to find faith on earth? What he wants mostly in our hearts is total commitment, total trust, total faith in him. That's what he wants to develop in our hearts. It's good for all of us to ask, do I totally depend on him or do I find my significance in my job? Yeah. Or do I find my significance in my yeah. golf game or in yeah. my work and whatever that may be? Jesus wants us to find our identity in him and him alone because everything else is going to be taken away. That can never be taken away. Yeah, that's so powerful. I, I, I say to people, you know, here I was the national Ch- coach of the year in 2001. You know, n- nobody's stock was hotter than mine in college basketball. Uh, go from Notre Dame, has had a great season, to North Carolina, number one in the country, uh, national coach of the year, and two years later, I lose my job. And may, I, may I say something real quickly yeah. here? The 2005 national championship was won by Roy Williams, but with your players. Oh, well, thank you. You recruited them, you developed them, and then he stepped in and got the fruit of all of your work. Well, I want to make sure that's said, because you, I think you. it's oftentimes overlooked. I appreciate that. But I, I jokingly say, but half jokingly that God came down and smacked me in the back of the head and say too much too fast and you know if 
God doesn't promise us a smooth path. He actually promises us a rough road, right? Uh, Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulations. I mean, what a clear statement. We're right. going to have tough times. We live in a fallen world, in fallen bodies, amidst other fallen, broken people. We're going to hurt. We're going to go through difficult times. But then Jesus concludes that verse by saying, but rejoice, I've overcome the world. And if he lives in us, that means as we face these tribulations, he'll give us his grace, mercy, and kindness that allows us to overcome those situations and become even better through them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Last last topic uh, we touched on a little bit, but I found this the hardest thing to do, but maybe the most selfish and it's all in the Bible, forgiveness. You touched on it a little bit. I had to learn to forgive those people that I felt slighted me at North Carolina. But as importantly, maybe more importantly, I had to learn to forgive myself. Mm. Because I think sometimes we hold ourselves to this high standard and want to be perfect. At least, you know, I try to be. And and when I make a mistake and I feel stupid that I did something wrong and wasn't as good a leader as I thought I should have been. That was the most freeing I ever felt when I got on my knees and forgave the people I felt slighted me. And I forgave myself. Mm. Can you touch on that? Yeah, let me go through a couple of layers here that I think would be helpful for our listeners, and really they've been helpful for me as I've walked through this pain as well. Uh, First of all, bitterness is the opposite of forgiveness, and bitterness just can't be an option. There's a verse in the Bible that says, bitterness is a root and destroys and defiles all around them. The truth is a bitter person ultimately infects bitterness in other people and nobody wants to be around you anymore. What is bitterness? It is holding on to the grudge. It's continuing to let it eat away at your heart. And someone once said that bitterness is like drinking arsenic and expecting the other person to die. (laughs) And that's what it is. So the opposite of bitterness, and the only way I know to destroy it, is forgiveness. Well, what is forgiveness? Let's define the term. The term forgiveness means giving up my right to be right. That's the first phrase, that I don't have to be right in what happened to me, that I did do some things wrong, and that's okay. Secondly, forgiveness is not wanting the other person to suffer in the same way I've suffered. It's giving up my desire for them to hurt like I've hurt. And so forgiveness, thirdly, then, is rooted in God's forgiveness of us. And Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Matthew about what forgiveness is. And it's a man who goes to a judge and has a billion-dollar debt, and the judge forgives him of that debt. And then he walks out on the streets and finds somebody who owes him 10 bucks, and he has that guy thrown into jail. Well, the judge hears about that story and calls the guy back in and says, you're the one going to jail, and you're not going to get out until you pay every single penny of what you owe. Well, Jesus' point there being that forgiveness begins with receiving from God his forgiveness of us. And on the cross of Calvary, what we Christians believe is that God paid off our $10 billion debt. The ways we've hurt him and his heart, the way we've disobeyed him and lived life on our own, it's a $10 billion debt, something we could never pay off, and God did so through Jesus, paid in full, debt forgiven. Well, then, if we have received that $10 billion debt repayment from the Lord, we can forgive people who've hurt us for 10 bucks. 
we, we can forgive those who in a smaller way have hurt our hearts. And forgiveness, again, is giving up my right to be right. Maybe there's some things I did do wrong here. And secondly, I'm giving up my right for you to hurt as much as I've hurt in this. Mm-hmm. And then praying for them and blessing them is saying, Lord, you take care of them. Probably the greatest blessing could be that they would come to grips with what they did mm-hmm. and receive forgiveness themselves because they're probably living in some stuff themselves. Mm-hmm. But you're giving it to God. You're walking away from it. And you're saying, nope, it's God's job to handle them now. I'm going to live my life to the full. And I think through that, Matt, you begin to be free. You know, Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom is one of the gifts of having a relationship with the Lord. We give it to him, we let him deal with it, and we move on with our lives to enjoy it to the full. Mm. Amen. Wow. David. Is it hard, though? <laughs> forgiveness is the hardest Absolutely. thing I've ever had to do. Because Absolutely. We, we, we were born to be competitive. Yeah, we, we want to win. We were wired to win. Yeah, and when somebody hurts us, we want them to hurt even more than we hurt. That's the deal with competitive people. But God is not competitive in that way. And that's why we've got to realize the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We've all sinned and fallen far short of God's glory. We all need grace, even that enemy who's hurt us. Amen. Well, David, thanks so much for sharing. We learned so much and and, uh, we could go on and on. And I'd love to talk again with you on on our podcast. And Um, you've been a great help to me, too. I want our listeners to know that during my journey that I called you a couple of times and you just sat down and listened and shared some thoughts with me that were very helpful. And I want to thank you for that, Matt. Well, the the whole deal with this podcast is leadership is a learned behavior. And you're a leader, whether you're a leader of your family, um, you're a leader in your community, you're a leader at your job you will be called on for some leadership responsibility at some time in your life. So we all lead in some way, shape, or form. And we all go through some things, and I think people like to hear that they're not the only one, that they're not the only one who's failed, they're not the only one who's angry, they're not the only one who's driving over the bitter river, and that there are other people that are going through it, and people that, when they look at, you and the success you have and me and the, you know, playing on a national championship team and coaching in North Carolina, they think, man, they got it. They got it. You know, comparison games are the work of the devil, right? Right. So, so to understand that we've all gone through some stuff can maybe lighten the load on our listeners. Well, and you know this too, Matt, if you don't mind me sharing this story real quickly. Um, Coach Smith won 879 games, Hall of Famer, greatest coach ever, in my opinion, but certainly one of the top four or five in the history of college basketball. In 1964, he was hung in effigy because he didn't win enough, not just once, but twice. Really? Twice. And he came home after the Wake game, and students had hung an effigy of Dean Smith, the big nose and everything, right outside Woolen Gym. And then they won a game that they shouldn't have won at NC State, and then lost a game they should have won at Duke, and came back in the second time, hung an effigy again. I mean, they wanted him gone. People just didn't like him as a coach at all. And evidently, after the second hanging in effigy, he went on the bus. And Jimmy Smithwick, who was a reserve on that team, told me this story. He got on the bus and he said, gentlemen, your character is what you think of yourself. Your reputation is what other people think of you. Always emphasize character. I just love that quote. Mm. And then he began to turn things around, got a couple of good recruiting classes Mm. and became the coach that we all know him today. But he went through severe failure to the point where people didn't want him to be the coach of Carolina at all. But you just keep moving forward going, you know, 
your reputation is what other people think of you, but your character is what you think of yourself. Emphasize character. That's what he did. Gave him his second, third chance, and look at what he became. Dear listeners, don't give up. Move through your pain. Your pain can be gain, not to use a euphemism, but it really can be, and God still has a plan for your life. Oh, wow. Powerful. Amen. Um, thank you again, David Chadwick, pastor of the... Wait, wait, don't say it. Don't say it. Uh, Moments of Hope Church in Charlotte. Uh, when and where are your services? Well, we're still looking for a place to meet. We're online. Go to momentsofhopechurch.org. We have a 9 o'clock and an 11 o'clock. Uh, we're still looking for a place. If any of your listeners out there have a place where, you know, a couple few thousand people could gather, because that's what's happened right now with the numbers that are coming in, we'd love to know of that place, but we're still looking for it. But you can come and worship with us online. Again, 9 and 11 on Sunday morning, momentsofhopechurch.org. Hopefully the pandemic will lift soon and we can start gathering personally again together. Great. Great, great. Thank you again. Uh, here's uh, Team Rebound, okay? Uh, you're all listening or on my team. Uh, team Rebound. The next episode, we will have Olympic speed skater Dan Jansen join us on the Rebound podcast. Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Darty Matt. <laughs>